Okay, good afternoon everybody and welcome to week eight. Now in week eight we're basically going to jump into the first of our lectures on the kind of the the psychology of culpability and assessing psychological intent from kind of crime scene behaviours with a view of kind of how would this psychology be applied in the court of law as if we were kind of a, a de facto jury, if you will, kind of on a trial. And um, the case that we're going to be looking at this week is the case of Elliot Turner. Now, what did Elliot Turner do? So Elliot Turner is, uh, I, I say this as, as if I'm proud. I'm not particularly proud. It's just an interesting factoid. Um, Elliot Turner was, was my brother's best friend growing up. He was a particularly narcissistic boy. He was unbelievably spoiled from a from a a very very rich family he thought of himself as kind of too good for everybody else and, and i think had certain personality traits associated with that and eventually he he dates this girl emily and, and she's very pretty and they seem to be getting on very very well um and then basically emily kind of becomes concerned about his controlling possessive and violent behaviors and 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 he ends up um and he ends up murdering her uh, after I think I think uh, after she tries to break up with him after a night of drinking and probably cocaine um, and and the question that we'll be looking at as a group on Thursday is to what degree was Elliot's behaviour expressive or what degree was it instrumental so so what do we mean by that I mean well to what degree did Elliot plan to murder Emily was it pre uh, preconceived, premeditated, if you will. And what degree was it an expressive outrage and an inability to control his own emotions based on the, uh, the emotions in the situation um, and the uh, and the um, you know the drugs or alcohol in his system and, and you know the effect that that has on kind of his you know impulse control as a as a as a psychological concept right now. From a, I, won't, I won't answer that question for you. One, because I'm debating it and I don't want to bias you. And two, you know, that's your decision to make based on the evidence presented on Thursday. But the reason that that question's important is because we need to know the psychology underpinning the actions that people have done. As in, what was it? What were the factors going on that were affecting or influencing their decisions in order to, one make sure that we um, uh, make sure that we punish or incarcerate them correctly but two make sure that we rehabilitate or or treat them effectively and three make sure that we you know release and manage them effectively now in that sense you know there is a very very big difference between the behavior of somebody who in a fit of emotional rage committed a violent act and someone who has been planning and uh, and premeditating to murder somebody you know for a a, a pronounced or, or long period of time right it's a very classic kind of um, a very classic kind of uh, uh, a classification if you will in the kind of the homicide literature between these two things but but the Elliot Turner case and the reason I choose it is is because it's very He's very interesting because he actually says before the murder about how he's going to murder Emily and all of these different things. He's very he, he, he literally says it out loud and then he actually does it. It's a fascinating case of kind of is it just a big mouth 
who accidentally once said something that he actually followed up on? Or is it that he was, a, you know, a premeditated and controlling and, you know, narcissistic evil individual um, who can't handle the concept of rejection and therefore thinks that he's so gifted and talented and perfect that he can murder instead, you know? But, but even if you sentence those two people the exact same, how you treat them and if you try rehabilitate them and if you do release them is completely different because the underlying psychological etiology and, and, and I guess vulnerabilities that led to their action are two completely different parts. One is kind of um, an impulse control emotional management issue and the other is very much a a a cognitive rational calculated um decision making process and so you'd need to you'd need to know that in order to have any chance of 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 releasing them and managing them or or, or at the very least attempting uh to rehabilitate them and, and also interestingly in that is there's there's very different perceptions on the degree to which you could assume one of those could or could not be rehabilitated so there's so many nuances to the question of well what was it from a psychological standpoint that was driving their criminal behavior and how much can we assess that from an individual so that's kind of what i, I chose this paper just because it's the methods are relatively uh, prototypical and it, it's not a, it's not a bad one to be honest um there, there, there aren't many bad ones, but, but there we go. So, so in this paper, what they basically do, and I, just wanna, I really just want to get to the behavior aspect rather than the introduction, to be honest, um, is they basically look at this idea of expressiveness and instrumentality and does it manifest itself in, 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 in homicide cases? So they use a database of, of 448 homicide cases basically um, collected uh, in Spain. Right. So I'm not going to go too much into the... Um, into the literature review. But what they're basically saying is that there is a, a psychologists have drawn a double dissociation. And this actually comes down to the the first weeks, the first couple of weeks lectures where we talked about instrumentality versus um, uh, we kind of talked about the FBI uh, uh, kind of practitioner experience investigative model of profiling. And, you know, we talked about, you know, they use experience and heuristics in order to assess kind of, you know, the likely um, characteristics of the criminal. Now, that from a profiling question is, you know, an expressive murder has different implications for who the potential criminal would be, as does an instrumental murder. Moving to the to the to the the jury and the court side of things, there's very different implications for how you conceptualize and treat the case based on who the murder is so it's an extension of the same idea but the lit review here is basically saying the same thing that there's instrumental violence which is driven by a desire for uh, monetary or, or some kind of motivational gain and then there's expressive violence which basically is a emotional reaction you know if you, if you imagine the ferguson model in, in this week's lecture an emotional reaction and an inability to control one's impulses when put in a stressful situation Right, so they basically say that that's been found in a bunch of other places uh, and that, you know, it's been tested a couple of times and they want to they basically want to see if the same is true, um, if the same is true in Spain. So what they do, and I think it's very interesting, what they do basically is they, they collect this this data of 600 or so Spanish cases, which they refine down to 448. And they 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 collect and code all of these kind of um 
crime scene behaviors um and 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 offender-based behaviors because again this is kind of a profile paper but but these crime scene behaviors and offender behaviors based within each of these individual cases so the way that these are done is they're coded in a binary fashion you know was it indoor yes no was it outdoor yes no did they um did they murder in a vehicle what was their method of approach oh and that that what they've done is they've done binary for each of them right and so basically they're coding all of these yes, no, yes, no, yes, no questions. And then what they do, and I think this is really interesting, and one of the reasons, again, I chose this paper is that the, the, as a forensic psychologist, it bodes well to learn about multidimensional scaling as a kind of, a, as a kind of a, a, an analytical concept. And that's something that they do in this paper, right? They do a, a multidimensional scaling model in order to assist with our analysis here so so what a multi-dimensional scaling model is is it is a a statistical method of detecting the co-occurrence of variables within a data set so right one one of the ways i would teach multi-dimensional scaling to students is i would say right i want you to think about clothing right and all of the possible items of clothing that you could wear so you know we'd have t-shirt tie uh shirt blouse socks sandals shorts uh jeans uh leggings jeggings if people still wear jeggings i'm not sure if they're a thing still i, I don't know why they were ever a thing but there we go um right, all these different clothes right and then for every single individual who walks into my lecture or who i see in the world right i'm going to mark what clothes they were wearing so it was Individual A was wearing a baseball cap, shorts, and a t-shirt. Okay, cool. Individual B was wearing ties, shirt, suit, smart shoes. Cool, okay. Individual C was wearing a, you know, jeans and a hoodie. Okay, cool, right? And I'll do that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. When I put all of that data into my multidimensional scaling model, what my multidimensional scaling model is going to tell me is it's basically going to tell me, or it's going to show me almost visually, if you will, what items of clothing are likely to be worn at the same time by the same person. So with the clothing example, you know, what is likely to co-occur? Shirt and tie, right? If you're wearing a shirt, you're likely to be wearing a tie. You're not likely to be wearing a tie and a t-shirt, right? Uh, socks and sandals. Ideally, they will be on completely opposite sides of the scale, right? So it's this visual method of of mapping clusters and co-occurrences of behaviors and basically it was David Cantor again who originally kind of said well this is a really interesting way of grouping different crime scene behaviors and if we group different crime scene behaviors maybe what we can do is we can identify these underlying kind of psychological motivations or stories, if you will, that lead to this kind of common co-occurrence. And then if you reverse engineer that, you get your, your profiling idea. So that's kind of what they, what they do in kind of figure one here is they basically kind of put all of these crime scene behaviors in and they, and they, and they kick out basically the co-occurrence of all of these behaviors in this sample of, you know, 400 and, 448 uh, Spanish homicides and, and so if you if you kind of look here so you've got I'm, I'm trying to think so you know an interesting one down here is you know at the very bottom you've got arson and stole right so when people uh, 
do elements of arson, so I guess they, they, they burn things at the same time, they're also likely to steal from the individual. It's quite interesting. Whereas if you look kind of up in the kind of the middle area here, you kind of have, you know, you have... Um, you have... Um, I'm sorry, my, my eyes aren't really good. Um, you know, vehicle and staged is another one. So, so you've got on the left side here, you know, if they committed it in a vehicle, they likely then staged the body afterwards. So again, what it's showing you is those two behaviours co-occur relatively similarly to each other, though they are rare. And what's interesting is that those, those behaviours occur very rarely with the behaviours down in the bottom right corner, which is stealing or arson. So they don't steal and they don't steal and stage the body. They don't kill them in a vehicle and then burn it. Those behaviours don't occur very often together. So when you're looking at a multidimensional scaling model, that's what you're kind of seeing. You're, you're the, the closer two um, variables are visually, the more likely they are to co-occur. And then what you do as a psychologist, and this is now on kind of page eight, is you then analyze that and identify basically themes of behavior that are um, that, that, that group together or underlie these, these behaviors. So if I was looking at my clothing uh, MDS or SSA, you can use both, multidimensional scaling or smaller space analysis. If I was looking at my clothing multidimensional scaling model, right, and I saw on one side, top left corner, I saw, you know, shorts, T-shirts, sandals. And on the bottom right corner, I saw fur coat, knitted sweater, jeans and Ugg boots or, or, or Sperry boots or whatever it was, right? On the top left, I would be like, okay, well, that's a theme there. What's the theme? Well, the theme is it's fucking hot outside, right? It's, it's the summer, right? So that, that's the, the, there's something, a theoretical concept that groups all of those together and explains why they're happening at the same time. In the bottom right corner, well, what explains, you know, all of the, uh, the co-occurrence of those behaviors? Well, it's, it's winter, Right. So the, the 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 theme of winter explains why those behaviors are together. So they basically do the same thing here. So they kind of group their behaviors. So they have kind of expressive distancing, expressive family, expressive impulsive, instrumental opportunist and instrumental gratification. So they're collecting or identifying, if you will, different themes of behavior that basic or different psychological concepts, if you will, that group and explain why all of these homicidal behaviors are occurring kind of with each other. And I think if we just look at the expressive impulsive as kind of one of the, um, the clearly the biggest one there, right? And what they basically say is that's kind of basic violence. You know, it's the most predominant characteristics. Uh, you know, it happens in interior locations using opportunistic sharp weapons. They tend to that, that tend to be located by the police during investigations because they haven't really thought about getting rid of it. The aggressors tend to be male, um, aged between 31 and 50 with a past criminal record. Please see the lecture on violent personalities, you know, and the victims tend to be male. Right. So what is it? it, it men opportunistically beating the shit and murdering other men with weapons that they grab in their near vicinity, right? These homicides are characterized by a lack of planning and premeditation and violent and impulsive in, the na in, their, in their, and emotional in their nature, right? Victim's body tends to be found at the site, revealing a lack of intent to hide or destroy the evidence. Absolutely prototypical expressive impulsive violence. But we could, we could contrast that, if you will, and... Personally, I'm not entirely sure about developing a typology of three behaviours. I generally think five typologies from a smaller space analysis is 
aggressive anyway. But if you look at the instrumental um, example, so, you know, instrumental gratification, you know, the... Um, the fifth and final typology is characterized by its instrumental nature. The victims are perceived as a, by a means of achieving the aggressor's main goal, which is to obtain sexual or economic gratification. Right? That's why stealing's there. That's why sexual behavior's there. Likely, it is possible there will be no evidence, since the perpetrator may have removed all incriminating incriminate, evidence by starting a fire at the crime scene. It's a completely different type of violence to the expressive impulsive, done by a completely different individual for completely different reasons, right? And so that is what these typology approaches are all about. They are all about identifying the differences in um, the differences in the psychological nature of the crimes that are being committed in order to allow you to understand the nature of the perpetrator, which in, in, a, in, a, in a profiling sense is reverse engineered to help you identify who the perpetrator may be, in a legal sense is, is whatever the, re the opposite of reverse engineered is, I suppose just continually engineered, engineered to allow you to learn something about why the individual was committing that crime. And what is that? Why do you do that? Because if you're thinking about a concept such as culpability, the degree to which they are culpable will likely vary between the, the different typologies of violence, right? So someone who is an instrumental gratification uh, offender who steals, um, sexually exploits, and then burns the evidence likely is a significant more degree culpable than somebody who, in a, in a drunken or emotional rage, murders somebody else with a weapon that they had to hand at that time. Right? It's Again, it's that shades of grey. It's the nuance within the case. Both are murderers, absolutely. Both are guilty, absolutely. But there are psychological shades of grey between their degree of culpability, and you can only know that by analysing and understanding the psychological um, antecedents or, or typology, if you will, of the crime in which you're looking at. So just, just I mean, going forward to the discussion again, and I, I don't think this paper uh, rocks anybody's world, but I like it because it, 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 it includes the methods that I like. It, it kind of shows that it's universal with a cross-cultural audience. It was open source, which meant it was free to everybody. Always a great one. Um, but, you know, it, it basically just shows you that in this sample of 458 murders, there are a range of different, um, co not co-occurring, a range of disaggregating motivations that are critical to how you think about the psychology of the individual who committed that crime and the implications henceforth of that. Um, and again, you know, it was founded. The, this idea of, you know, um, of instrumental expressive was founded in the FBI in the 1980s, continued on through Cantor in the 1990s. And, you know, here we are in 2019. Again, another reason I chose it to show that it's still kind of being used now, still being used in 2019 as a way of exploring the relationship between the or the relationship and or the psychology driving the offender in these homicides. And what this shows you, you know, along with any of the other papers they cite, you know, Gerard's work, Salfati's work, Cantor's work, that, you know, 
there is a big psychological difference, both psychologically and behaviorally, between someone who plans to murder someone and has a degree of premeditation and someone who is overcome with emotion in the moment. And what we have to then do going forward as psychologists is think, identify which one it is, first and foremost, and then think about the implications of that for questions such as how much are they sentenced for, how do we treat them, how do we rehabilitate them, and do we ever release them? You know, critical questions that the legal system has to ask, we can only tap into by unpicking and understanding the relationship or the psychological motivation, if you will, of the offender at the time of the crime. And so just the, the multidimensional scaling model is a really nice way of showing you that a way that we can approach that is kind of trying to split these crime types into kind of superordinate themes that are leveraging psychological concepts. You know, one is premeditation, rational choice, etc. And one is, you know, impulse control, expressive, emotional overloads and all this kind of stuff. So I really hope you enjoyed this uh, paper. Definitely give it a read or, or check out some of the early canter work on this. You know, Google Scholar, type in instrumental expressive and, you know, you'll, you'll have more than your fair share to read. But I hope you enjoyed it. And it's just a, this concept of disaggregation and culpability is, is one that we're going to be taking forward for the next few weeks. And I, I hope this was a, a lovely introduction to that. So thank you very much for listening or watching, whichever you chose to do. And I very much look forward to speaking to you more about this on Thursday. So have a great day. Thank you.